There are eyes in the tongue of the soul. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Five seconds of honey on the tongue will teach you more of sweetness than ten hours of lecture about the scientific distinction between sweetness and sourness. Taste and see that the Lord is good until God gives you a taste in your soul of His goodness. You can read and listen and study and never be changed. When Elihu was finished speaking the truth to Job, Job didn't say anything. Only when God finished did Job say something. And what he said was, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye has seen you. Theology was a little helpful, but until God Almighty came and addressed Himself to the heart of Job, it was all a rumor. Job tasted God when he saw God. He's a changed man now. He's a broken man. I invite you to turn with me to chapter 42 of the book of Job. God has him where he wants him. It has taken him months to get him there. And we will see what a glorious thing God has done in his strange way. He is a broken and a changed man. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 42... We see the evidence of this as God brings Job to the point of confessing in deep reverent submission three great truths. First, verse 2, he confesses that God is absolutely sovereign with these words. I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Sovereignty, I bow. Verse 3 is the second thing that he confesses, namely that his wisdom is so inferior to God's it looks like ignorance. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God's wisdom so surpasses my wisdom. And the third great truth that he confesses in verse 6 is that he is guilty of a despicable sin in questioning the ways of God. And so he says... I despise myself in, and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job is a broken and a changed man. And that's what happens when you see God. I don't generally pray for you people. I do sometimes. But not generally do I pray that you would see your sin for what it is. I generally pray, open the eyes of their hearts that they might see you in the majestic holiness of your throne. Everything else takes care of itself. And sin that is seen apart from the holiness of God is probably not seen for what it is anyway. It always happens. It happened to Isaiah. Woe is me, for I'm a man of, of unclean lips. 
for I have seen the Lord of glory. It happened to Peter. When Jesus did the miracle of the fish and then approached Peter, he said, Depart from me, for I'm, an, I'm, I'm a sinner. It happened to the centurion when Jesus did him the grace of coming toward his house. He said, Don't enter under my roof, for I am unworthy. Every time you see God for who he is, you see yourself in a very dark light. You see, before Job saw God, how did he feel? He, he esteemed himself Quite highly. He did not hesitate to proclaim his righteousness. No qualifications. He was holding forth about his virtue. And then God spoke and revealed himself and Job went face down. We don't grieve often over our sin or feel very deeply unworthy. And the reason is because we don't see God the way we should. And so I urge you to... Pray that God not be simply a doctrine in your ear and in your mind, but that God be a holy, dreadful, awful, sovereign, majestic sovereign that you have tasted and seen. Because it will change you. Everything will change. Jonathan Edwards was changed. He had a wrestling in his early days about the sovereignty of God that was not unlike Job's. I want to read you from Edward's personal narrative. He wrote about his early childhood. He said, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found as much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading the words in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King Eternal... Immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul, and as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I had experienced before. Now, I think what happened to Edwards at that point was what the psalmist meant when he said, taste and see. He had known the doctrine in his head for years and wrestled with it. And then by the grace of God, there came into his soul what he called a new sense. Taste. And his objections were over. And his worship was underway. He was a broken and a humbled man. He spoke of it like this. We don't talk like this today to our shame. In fact, we think that people who talk like this are sick. I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. 
My wickedness as I am in myself has long appeared to me perfectly ineffable. Swallowing up all thought and imagination like an infinite deluge or a mountain over my head. I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. When God gives you the taste of the majesty of his holiness, that won't sound pathological. It'll sound healthy, true, right, yours. What kind of life comes from a confession like that? What, what happens to a person when they've seen God like that and themselves? Are they from that point on morose, joyless, powerless people? Here's what Edwards describes. The, the desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope and their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble and broken-hearted joy and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit, more like a little child, more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. That's what God is after, brothers and sisters, in your life. If he has to lay you in the hospital, he'll do that. If he can prosper you, he'll do that. If he takes your spouse, he'll do that. If it takes your children, he'll do that. God is after broken-hearted, childlike joy of faith, whatever it takes. It's the most valuable thing he could give you. Whatever it costs is worth it. And that's where he's got Job. And now he's going to restore the blessings of Job in these last verses of the chapter 42. He's going to double his wealth. He's going to give him seven sons and three daughters and he's going to restore his health. But I want to pause here and, and say that the reason I think God did this for Job is to make clear to his contemporaries who didn't know that much about heaven or the afterlife, to make clear to his contemporaries that God always vindicates his servants. Now, I want to warn you that he doesn't always do it in this life like he did for Job. He didn't for Jesus. He didn't for Stephen. He didn't for James. He didn't for Paul. He didn't for Peter. He didn't for Peter Stam. He hasn't for some of the great saints in this church. He may not for you. But he will, eventually. That's the point of the closing of this book. There will be glory for those who have suffered with Christ even if death ends in the midst of the suffering, your life. I hope that you will read the article in this week's Christianity Today called God in the Gulag. I wish I had time to read stories of these Jobs in the Soviet Union. They are magnificent. It's in our library. Get it. And read God in the Gulag for a contemporary version of Job. Before God restores the benefits and the health and the family of Job, he has two more things he wants to accomplish. And it's very crucial to see that he accomplishes these two things before he restores the benefits and the blessings. First of all, he wants to crush 
the pride of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And he's going to do it in two ways. Let's read verses 7 to 9 of chapter 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. There are two ways that God aims to put these three fellows in their place. One is to tell them that their theology has been wrong. And the other is to make them seek God through Job. Take them one at a time. Look at verse 7. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Your theology is wrong. So God becomes the final arbiter in this debate. He says, Job right, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar wrong. Now, you're all thinking, wait a minute, Job right? Job had been addressed by God. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? So not everything Job said was right. He said lots of things that were bad for which he repented. I think what God means is, if you boil down the debate between Job and his three friends, it boils down to this. They said, suffering comes from sin, prosperity comes from righteousness. And Job said, no way. The world teaches just the opposite. There are many righteous people who suffer more than the wicked and many wicked people who prosper more than the righteous. You are very wrong. And God says, Job is right. And Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are wrong. And he settles the debate. But there's one other thing he wants to do. And this is just amazing to me. It's so beautiful. It's so rich with implications for us. He's not only going to force these three friends to admit that their theology has been wrong and that Job's a better theologian than they are. He is going to say, you you can't go to your closet now and ask for forgiveness and have me forgive you and go on your merry way back to your lands. No way. If you want to be accepted with me, you take your bulls and your rams and you go to Job and ask him to pray for you. That's great. That is just beautiful. The very one whom they had said is so far from God because he's committed this great sin as is clearly evidenced in his suffering now becomes their priest. They're far from God and and must draw near to God through the priest Job who will now intercede with God for these wicked teachers. Utterly humiliating. Utterly humiliating and reconciling. You can count on it this morning. If you are far from God, there is one pathway back to God through your abused brother or sister and no other way.
But it cuts both ways, doesn't it? There's a second thing God wants to do before he restores the fortunes of Job. He wants to, in the first place, bring Eliphaz and Bildad to the dust, humble them and correct their theology and restore them to Job. But now there's another test going on. Here they come with their bulls and their rams and their chins on the ground walking up to Job, the one whom they have abused, criticized, accused of terrible sin. Now who's being tested? What is the last test that Job goes through? It's the test of will he love his enemies and pray for those who persecute him? Will he do good to those who hate him? Will he return good for evil instead of evil for evil? Remember, he's a very sick man still. He's got boils all over his body. His children are dead. His possessions are gone. And God isn't healing him yet until he is willing to forgive his enemies. Why? What's going on here? What's the lesson? What are we supposed to learn from this? I think we're supposed to learn Matthew 6.14. If you forgive those who sin against you, your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you will not forgive those who trespass against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. If you insist on becoming a cul-de-sac for the forgiveness of God instead of a conduit that lets it flow out to your enemies... Bank on it, you are deceived and not forgiven. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? So God puts Job to this last test, and Job passes it. Just delicately stated there in verse 9, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So here we are at the end of the story, and four magnificent things have been achieved. Let's list them. Let's pray that they be achieved here. One, the residue of sin and pride in the saint's life has been purged out. And Job is broken and changed and humbled man. False teaching, bad theology has been corrected and the folly of those teachers has been humbled. The camaraderie or brotherhood of the servants of God has been restored. Don't you see that? These men have been called friends all the way through this book. They have been believers mistaken believers. And and God said, you aren't going to get right with me until you get right with Job. And he's always done it that way, and he continues to do it that way. And so you've got the restoration of the comrades here at the end of the book. And finally, remembering all the way back to the beginning, the accusations of Satan have been nullified. And the superior worth of the glory of God in the heart of Job has been vindicated and demonstrated.
And may the Lord grant us the grace here at Bethlehem to learn that though God's ways are not always our ways, and though his thoughts are not always, rarely, our thoughts, nevertheless, they are always wise and always merciful for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know the place in the New Testament where the point of the book of Job is summarized? James 5, verse 11. See if we've been on track. Behold, James writes, we call those happy who were steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The purpose of the Lord in your suffering as a child of God is compassionate and merciful. It is for your good. It achieves things that are infinitely valuable and we should rejoice in it. As we draw to a conclusion our stammering efforts to understand and unfold this great book of Job, forgive us, I pray, in the errors of our understanding and guard your people from them. Forgive us for our failure to apply what we have understood. And be pleased, O God, to work in this congregation a purging of the residue of pride and sin, a correcting of all wrong theology, a healing and purification of camaraderie between brothers and sisters, a vindication of your great and superior worth over the accusations of the evil one. For unto you belong might and riches and wisdom and power and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.